This is City on the Edge, the podcast where we tell Albuquerque and New Mexico stories. Uh, joining me today, I've got Mike Smith and uh, someone we haven't seen in a while, Roland Pentella, uh, who has been on the show several times. I think most recently was the Little Beaver Town, or was it the um, submarine it marching? May have been the submarine. Yeah, but uh, we're happy to to have you back with us, and you've got a, a pretty cool story about the time a nuclear bomb was dropped on Albuquerque, among other yeah. things. <laughs> That's, this is so crazy. I can't believe it's true. One of the strangest uh, strangest stories. But uh, but before that, I thought, yeah. Mike, you had, yeah. a, you had a story about a plane crash that was um, had a bit of a mystery attached oh. to it. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't say. Um, I wrote an article some time ago on uh, since we're we're going to be talking about military crashes today um, and military accidents in this area. Um, <clears throat> this piece was less about that and more of a general uh, sort of look at crashes in the Sandias in general. And there have been a lot. I mean, everyone knows the TWA crash, which is the big famous mm. one. Um, we talked about that on the show, of course. How many people? Thirteen people. Uh, I can't remember people, offhand. Like but yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, crashed into the Sandias in a snowstorm. And that's, that's very, uh, you know, the, the best known of, of them. Mm-hmm. we did like an, we, didn't we do an episode about that? I feel like we, we did. did. We definitely did. Yeah. It's been a while. Uh, but, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally been a while, but, but there were many others as well. There, um, a number of small plane crashes there, there, were, uh, uh, well, I'm going to leave all the military stuff out cause Roland's going to yeah. get into that, but, but, you know, people were training there through world war two and, and there were commercial crashes all through the middle of, of the century. And really every single mountain range around here has had crashes too. Mount Taylor, uh, you know, we all talk about the TWA crash in the Sandias, but Mount Taylor had the crash that created TWA and basically um, uh, a lot of uh, the, the federal oversight of the airlines because it was one of the biggest crashes at that time ever on Mount Taylor. And Charles Lindbergh was out here flying around looking for him. When and, was this? Uh, it was, this was in... Um, one of the, like the early 20s, I think. Oh, okay. Uh, a, a crash on Mount Taylor. I mean, the Manzanos have had crashes. Sandia, some of the interesting ones to me. I heard this one, but then I, now I, I don't know because we were talking with Roland before the show, and some of the details sound like they're not didn't happen in the Sandias. Regardless, it definitely happened in the Albuquerque area when a plane went down with um, uh, a, a lot of uh, people with winnings back from Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and it, be, it became the object of a treasure hunt people looking for uh, the winnings from this crash. There was right. also uh, one in Harris Canyon that uh, there were only two people on the plane that were in the flight logs and everything, but three bodies were found. So everyone was like, uh, what's going on with these people? Yeah, it's a little turns peculiar. Out they were, yeah, it turns out they were, you know, it was all on the level. They were transporting the bodies to Harris. Oh, okay. But, so th- but, that, <laughs> that person was listed as cargo. Yeah, yeah so... <laughs> but, but it's still sad. Then they all died. I mean, that's those stories are crazy. When like people right. die on the way to a funeral or something like that. Yeah. But um. But uh, but those things. I you know the things that Roland is going to talk about tonight are I think in general bigger stories than these mm-hmm. sorts of smaller ones that happened. But but I mean the fact is like this whole land is just you know shingled in stories like this. But also <laughs> I thought you were like, going to say aircraft parts. Like, 
Well, yeah, to that, to some degree, yeah. Like, I mean, if you walk up to the TWA crash, you'll, you'll yeah. see those. And, and other places haven't been cleaned up as well. I've heard about mm. sites that, uh, you know, are really somber because there's still like bits of bone and teeth. Oh, my God. Really? Like that, you know, like horrifying, you know, because mm. how do you clean up some of these remote sites? Yeah. There was I think that one in the Sandias several years ago that, um, the, you know, rescuers couldn't get to the uh, the wreckage um, easily because there were bears eating everybody. You know, it's like wow. it's still really wild up there. It's still a yeah, totally that's like, true. uncharted land in a way. You know, uh, these these uh, reclusive canyons. I mean, I have a story we'll probably get to someday about someone who was lost in the mountains for a while in the 80s. And it was like, it, you know, <laughs> like it's it's a wild place back there. It's, it really is. But, Especially um, if you go up it, the, in the winter or something like that. Totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I, I think you're breaking uh, up there, Mike. Oh, but I'm really excited to hear what Roland has uh, prepared for us tonight. So, I don't know. I'm excited to hear what Roland has to say. That's yeah, absolutely. So, um, <laughs> so Roland, uh, you're a what? Uh, we've introduced you in the past, of course, but you're a you're a local historian. Uh, you do a lot of work with the uh, the historical society, and and what what other what other sort of pursuits are you are you up to these days? Um, Sheltering yeah. in place, just, yeah, just like trying not to breathe else. anyone else's air. <laughs> just like everybody else, I'm, uh, is what I'm keeping it on the down low. Yeah, good for um, you. <laughs> so we aren't meeting anymore. Uh, the historical societies used to meet every uh, third Sunday over at the museum, and uh, that discontinued sometime in March, and we haven't started up. We've had a number of um, video meetings, uh, not so many with the Albuquerque Historical Society, but we did with Historical Albuquerque Incorporated, uh, and they saw fit to um, appoint me as their treasurer. So I'm leaving for Mexico tomorrow. Oh, okay. Glad oh. we got you in here today. I'm kidding. Okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah. Mean? Okay. You got all. Sorry, I'm slow on the uptake. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah so, I got it. You got their $35 in their treasury. So um, actually, it's a $37.50. So well, we're okay. way better off than you thought. <laughs> um, the, uh, in fact, Mexico is an interesting story because. I had a trip to go meet a friend in La Paz, Mexico in late February, early March. And so I went on that trip and I was there for four days and came back uh, on Sunday. And um, my sister-in-law who had some health problems demanded that I quarantine at the house here for 14 days before I came anywhere near her. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, coronavirus was in the news, mm -hmm. but it was like, it's in China. It's right, not right. really here. Yeah. And, um, we had no oh, those beautiful we days. Yeah. I remember yeah. March. Yeah. Those halcyon days of, yeah. uh, of blissful ignorance. <laughs> so, um, that's been, now I, I did that research and story on Little Beaver Town uh -huh. and gave a number of presentations about yes. it, including on your show. Uh -huh. um, just recently, something happened. I found out through a weird uh, means, somebody on the Historical Society found on YouTube 
a movie that was being shown of Little Beaver Town. Oh. And so he shared it because he knew that there was an interest in it. Well, I immediately saw that it was probably um, something that was semi-professionally done really? because um, of the access that the photographers seemed to have. And it was taken on opening day, which is July right. 15th, 1961. Wow. And so uh, I contacted the YouTuber. Um, uh, he's a really nice uh, gentleman named Daniel Gibbons. And Daniel Gibbons gave me permission. In fact, he shipped that file to me in an MP4 today. And cool. so I now have that. He believes that it was taken by Fred Harmon himself. Oh, wow. So now wow. I have that uh, clip. He says it's it's color film, 16 millimeter. So very Amazing. few people in 61 were shooting 16 millimeters. So that's another clue that it was Fred Armand. So then that, so cool. I asked him, how did he get a hold of it? And he said, well, I bought it in an antique store in Pagosa Springs. Oh, yeah. So okay, I you're right. called three antique stores asking them if they had any Fred Harmon items from, you know, because his... Um, I guess that would have been his daughter-in-law recently died, Norman, oh. Norma. And so they closed down the house, the museum up there. Mm, and yeah, I, know, I think yeah. the daughters, the granddaughters just had a big uh, estate sale. And, and I did get a call from one of the stores, uh, Feather Your Nest is the name of it. And she may have uh, Little Beaver Town items from the Fred Harmon collection. Amazing. And just as a just as a quick uh, recap for people who oh. may not have heard the earlier episode, uh, Little Beaver was was Red Rider, the comic book cowboy's sidekick, and uh, Albuquerque was the home of a Little Beaver theme park for about what did we decide? Two years? Three yeah. years? Three years wow. uh, in the sixty-one 60s. to sixty-three. Yeah, it was a failure. But also, Fred Harmon, the illustrator of uh, of the Red Rider comics, lived here in Albuquerque for part cool. of the year. So. That's really cool. That is cool. That was a great episode. Yeah. I love that episode. Yeah, one of his my favorites. House, his house, or his former house, I should say, is only about three blocks away from my house. Yeah. Uh, wild. I usually go by it when I walk the dogs. And, and we know the people that live there now, and they've invited me to come in. and, and uh, That's so cool. Sometimes nice. after the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. When we well, return to life. So tell us about this. Uh, you got a, it's got an audio, it's got a visual component too. Uh, but we're mainly for the purposes of the podcast, we're going to be describing what's happening um, in the presentation. But if uh, if you are hearing this um, through the podcast and and you want to uh, see some images and so forth from the the stories that Roland's going to be telling, you can go to our YouTube. It's it's City on the Edge podcast um on youtube so uh you will be able to see that episode up there um after uh, after we publish this so all right well without further ado why don't you uh why don't you tell us what we're in for tonight okay well i started off when i heard that there had been a nuclear bomb that had been dropped near sunport and um that that's the title that's the headline and it's like <laughs> Yeah, so, I don't remember all the flesh melting off my bones. So, of course, I asked all the people in the Historical Society, and they're going, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> of course, that adds fuel to the fire of me trying to find out what happened. 
and I've done a bunch of research uh, about that. Um, and again, the details are not all known or at least available since it's a governmental accident, which I'm right. sure they're a little ashamed of or embarrassed at least. And so they've, uh, it, it's very hard to get any details. Now I could have filed a, a Freedom of Information Act, which I actually did with the Air Force. They oh, told me well, I needed to do another one with the nuclear commission. And those things however, are pain, right? However, everybody is out with Corona. Yeah, so all their, yep. all their files, all of their access to data that they could share with me if they decided to, it, it's not happening. So well, I'll try again well, after the pandemic. Well, I hope you're successful with that. Yeah, me too. And, and I, I will say that I hope that there is a time called after the pandemic. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding, man. Yeah. What a right drag. Now, right now, the light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train. <sighs> right. Well, I, I mean, after the pandemic, not after the event. Like <laughs> We're on another uh, another downhill right now, which is nice. So you know, there's always like we've dropped cases uh, su successfully over the last oh, few days. Oh, that that kind of downhill. So, yeah, it's uh, there's some hope anyway. Yeah. Oh, and well, uh, you will have to let me share my screen. Tom, yeah, you have it blocked. So, okay. That figures. Let me see if I Here can. Here we go, Ty. Great. Roland's trying to share his screen. And what are you doing? <laughs> what if I make you a host? Will that do it? Probably. Okay, why don't you try that? Okay. Great. Now he owns City on the Edge. Oh, man. Here we go. Oh, oh. <laughs> the day a thermonuclear bomb was dropped on Albuquerque. That was, <laughs> that was a bad day. It's not as bad as it could have been. And other local military accidents. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So the accidents that I was going to be talking today are, let's see, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, like about nine, less than 10 accidents. And, and we'll talk about the nuclear one first. Okay. Um, but I, I was surprised at the number of military accidents. And as I said, I wanted to um, keep my talk just about military accidents. And I thought, well, I might have three. Well, there was more than three. Right. The, the first one is the, the one, the headline, headline grabber, the nuclear, thermonuclear bomb. Yeah. So it was Wednesday, May 22nd of 1957. Think about where your audience may have been at that time. Well, I know where we would have been. <laughs> nowhere at all. I was a wheat field and an underground yeah. aquifer. Yeah. Um, so this picture that the people at um, YouTube are seeing is a picture of the uh, B-36 Peacemaker bomber made by Convair. And it was, I think it still holds the title as the largest uh, military aircraft ever built. I think it's a monster. I mean, look at it. it it's just- It is huge. It had six propellers that faced backwards Wrong and way. actually pushed the plane. Um, and the and so it had a distinctive sound, you can imagine, with six propellers. Um, uh, later, later models, they added four jet engines on two pods out towards the wingtips. 
So uh, this was referred, this plane was referred to as um, the plane that had six turning and four burning. <laughs> and nope. the whole point of this plane was to carry nuclear weapons for the strategic was, air command. It was built wow. for the purpose. Right. And the bomb that was in it the day that it approached Albuquerque was called the Mark 17 and one of the largest nuclear weapons ever built. Jeez. So you're saying, why did it come to Albuquerque? Glad you asked that question. <laughs> um, it, these so wait, bombers, it came to Albuquerque? It was on its way to Albuquerque. To Albuquerque, okay. It was flying here. It, it, its intent was to land at Kirtland Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. um, and it had come from Biggs Airfield in El Paso, where these planes were, um, that was their home base. Okay. And the reason it was coming to Albuquerque is that these bombs, all the bombs, but the Mark 17 was ready for some uh, routine maintenance is what it was called. And, mm -hmm. and I believe that it was, they have to be, I don't know, tweaked. They need, you know, they need their bolts tightened and their screws. Sure. So, so it, was, it was bringing the bomb to Kirtland where it would be offloaded, put on a truck, and taken either the Los Alamos mm -hmm. or the Los Alamos folks would come down to Kirtland and do that maintenance there. It, Interesting. it was not clear and not mentioned in any of my research what actually happened. So um, again, the picture of one. this Mark 17, if people in the Albuquerque area want to see a Mark 17 in real life, all they have to do is drive down to Eubank and Central at the National um, Museum of Nuclear Science, and there is one right there for you to stand, take, get your selfie by it. Now, is this a, a like a uranium bomb or a plutonium bomb or fission uh, or fusion? They just call it thermonuclear. Okay. So that's all that I know. Mm. Now, you'll see in, in this picture that some are seeing that it has kind of a flat nose. Well, um, all these bombs that were carried by aircraft um, were not armed with the trigger that would make them a nuclear bomb. They, they had the material in them, but they needed something to really set off the nuclear explosion. And that was never installed in the bombs until they were, the crew was given the orders that they were about to drop it, and then they would go back and, and arm it. Stick it on so, the front. Yeah. yeah, these bombs uh, were not armed while they were flying around. Um, they still okay. were dangerous, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but they were not going to create the uh, explosion that you would have imagined. Did they so, have the nuclear material inside of that, that that would eventually go off with the triggering device? Um, they, again, not exactly clear, but mm -hmm. I know that what was in the larger casing was a mixture of conventional explosion, explosive mm -hmm. and some nuclear material. And that's all they would say is some nuclear material. And we'll talk a little bit about how that came into play uh, all mm -hmm. in this accident. So um, here's another picture. The Mark 17 bomb was 24 and a half feet long 
wow. five feet in diameter, and it weighed 42,000 pounds. Holy moly. They Holy called it the Peacemaker? They called the plane the Peacemaker. The plane, oh, peacemaker. Okay. Oh. plane oh. was called the Peacemaker. Oh, okay. I don't okay. know that they ever named a bomb the Peacemaker. Okay. That's the definite Peacemaker. And then, okay, so I just looked at it. It's a, it is a hydrogen bomb. So this is, uh, this is one of the, the really massive explosions. So a hydrogen bomb use it, it, it splits the atom, but uses it to kickstart fusion. Is that right? Is that the distinction? Right. The yeah, exactly. Oh. So it's got a, it's got a uh, series of explosives that yeah. start a fission reaction that then trigger a, a fusion huh. reaction, and it's an enormous oh. explosion. Like Tsar Bomba. It's, it's, the, it's the stuff that freaked Oppenheimer out. He was like, he was cool right. with fission, but with right. when, when it came to hydrogen bombs, he was kind of over it. Like Trinity was fun, man. We were just <laughs> blowing little explosions up, a bombs. Wow. Okay. Well, okay. Now this this slide here, uh, for those on YouTube, um, shows a B twenty nine. Now B twenty nines obviously are famous because or infamous, because coming up in August will be another anniversary of the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima. Um, but the B-29s were the ones that were used uh, to drop the two bombs on, uh, or the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Right, but in this slide, you can see how enormous the B-36 is compared with the B-29. It, it seems almost that you could fit at least two maybe three B-29s inside the B-36. Of yes. course, if you disassembled them and put the parts in it. It looks now, like a toy. Um, <laughs> it looks like a toy yeah, next it, to it. Yes. So uh, also you'll notice um, for those uh, paying attention at home, uh, watching the, the slides, the two jets have not been installed on this earlier model of the B-36. Oh. So it only has the six turning okay. without the four burning. Uh. You know that the the C thirty six it just kind of looks wrong. Like it's, it the proportions are wrong somehow. It, yeah. it looks ungainly and uh, almost like a child's drawing of a B twenty nine, way out of scale, way out of proportion. I agree. In fact, I think they said that the wingspan of a B thirty six was longer than the initial powered flight of the Wright brothers. <laughs> mm, that's hilarious. Interesting. So wow. this photograph is actually of the crew that was bringing the bomb to Albuquerque. Now, this was taken at a different time, um, but it is the crew of the B-36 that was carrying that bomb. He's, his, the commander was Lieutenant Colonel Heron and his crew, and this was taken in 1957 uh, at Biggs. Mm -hmm. in the, other crewmen aboard were the co-pilot, Dick Meyer, uh, the radio operator, George Houston, the electronics officer, Jack Rezin, and the 25-year-old flight engineer, Jack Williams, and the navigator, Bob Park. So the flight to Albuquerque was relatively uh, uneventful. In fact, because they wanted to do a twofer, they said, well, on our way to Albuquerque, rather than just fly directly there, they had some maneuvers. They, they tried out some maneuvers um, that were part of the training regime. Um, so they had, you know, gotten that done. 
and they were heading into the Sunport after that short flight. And uh, this slide, for those watching slide, show, and the red line shows the approximate path of the B-36 in its landing approach. And pilots would recognize this as the standard landing approach of downwind, base, and final. Um, and so they came in from the southwest, approaching the airport runway, the east-west runway at about a 45 degree angle. Uh, it's pretty standard approach for aircraft. Um, and as they turned a slight right turn to parallel the runways and uh, fly towards or east towards the Sandias um, before they made two left turns to land on the west facing runway, uh, 26 is its number. Oh. The bomb, well, let me tell you a little bit about how bombs were okay. put in these B 36. Um, they're obvious in some sort of a sling. In fact, the um, Air Force loved to give acronyms to all sorts of things. So the, the thing that held the bomb is called the BMS, the Bomb Management System. Okay. And uh, so it held the bomb in a kind of a cradle uh, until it was going to be dropped. And of course, the bomb bay doors at the bottom of the plane would open up and then the bomb would be armed, and then um, from the cockpit, they would pull a lever and the, the bomb would be released. The, the next thing that happened is these bombs actually had a parachute. So they would drop out of the plane and free fall for a ways before nose down, the parachute popped out of the back and it would slow the rate of descent because nuclear bombs, do not go off when they hit the ground. Oh, They're designed to go off up above the uh, ground at an oh. altitude, and it depends on the bomb makers which one that is. And the Nagasaki and um, Hiroshima bombs were that way too. They went off mm. in the atmosphere at two or three or four thousand feet above the ground. And, and sorry to say, but the reason for that is because it causes greater damage. Right. Um, so the bombs are designed um, to fall head first and then be slowed by a parachute. But because these bombs are so heavy, 42,000 pounds, um, the Air Force designed in a fail-safe mechanism so if the plane in approaching or taking off came into some sort of trouble. The engines didn't work or the engines on the left side stopped or anything that threatened the, the integrity of the flight. There was the, somebody in the crew had to go back to the bomb, reach over this thing on a catwalk that they had to crawl to get to and flip this lever that would then allow a mechanical connection through a wire for the pilot to pull a lever and then the bomb would drop out of the plane. Okay. And that, was, that was built in intentionally so that the bomb's weight would not make the accident the, or right. the, the incident that might be happening be worse. Right, so, okay. So as it was standard procedure to do, um, 
a member of the crew, and it turns out that it was usually the navigator's responsibility. I don't know why I thought about this for a while, but you know, the navigator tells the pilot or advises the pilot um, how to fly to get where they're going. Mm -hmm. So the assumption is, I guess, that if they're already in sight of the airport, the navigator's not really needed, so yeah. he gets to go and do this service. He's got time for uh, time to check things out, yeah. <laughs> so he crawls back, and I mean crawl. This is a huge plane, but it didn't have, you can't walk straight here up, you can't even crawl, you have to mm -hmm. kind of crawl in your belly. He goes back to this thing, he reaches over the top of the bomb, he disengages the fail safe, so that the pilot can jettison the bomb should there be a problem. And just as he flips that switch, the bomb falls. Oh, what and happened? Something happened in the cable may have been snagged or uh, somehow failed. And this is the part that I don't get because mm -hmm. the freedom of information didn't allow me to get that yet. I'm still going. Oh, gonna... that's suspicious. Interesting. So, <laughs> but the, the but research that this guy hated Albuquerque. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the a couple of things happened. First of all, the Bombay doors weren't open. Okay. Because no one wanted this to happen. Right, no right. Anticipated happening. So this 42,000 pounds of metal oh. and explosives just crash through and just completely destroy the huge Bombay doors, uh, which are over 30 feet long and uh, like a clamshell, they open out. Mm -hmm. um, so that's gone. And as soon as that happens, of course, the sound is tremendous of this bomb going through these yeah. doors. So it, it just rumbles through the whole plane and immediately everybody knew something had happened. Can you imagine that poor navigator just watching that happen? <laughs> like Actually, someone says that over the radio, you could hear someone yell, it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> so he immediately defended himself. Oh, wow. So a couple of things. Very suspicious. You were just right there when it happened. Okay. The, the sound happens. The, the plane is shaking. And the second thing happens, the plane now, unburdened with 21 tons of weight, pops up in the air. It gained a thousand feet of elevation because it was no longer heavy like it was before. Wow. So um, the pilot uh, makes his adjustments and he realizes he's not going to be landing right away because um, these large planes Because <laughs> he just dropped have, a bomb on it. <laughs> well, these large planes need to have calculations that tell them what their approach speed is, mm. uh, what their landing distance is going to be, and uh, a lot of that. So all of this had to be quickly recalculated before they could land uh, minus 42,000 pounds. Wow. Now, it, the bomb came out of the plane, crashed through the, the um, doors, and the, it, they were so close to the ground. They were about 1,500 feet above the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, and there wasn't enough time for the parachute to fully deploy. I think it popped out of the back, but it didn't fill up with air, so it didn't slow this thing down. And it, 
hit the ground with a tremendous force. And of course, the conventional explosives in it went off. Mm, I see. So there was this huge explosion that created a crater 25 feet in diameter and uh, five or oh. four feet deep. And it happened in what is still an undeveloped area of Albuquerque. Uh, imagine if this had fallen on homes. Now, this is not the part the part of the base or anything like that. This is just like part of a of undeveloped of an undeveloped uh, housing area. Or we know it today as Mesa del Sol. Uh huh. Okay. And um, Mesa del Sol is owned by UNM. Mm -hmm. So all this that property is. down Mesa del Sol is UNM property. Right. Whoa. It was then, and it still is today. Now, Great. is this a, a modern day view of the area? This. Yes. Uh, so it looks like that's pretty undeveloped still. Yes, um, it is. Is there any remnant of uh, any indication of of the crater that was once there? They just they fill it in with a backhoe or something. Well, I'll, I'll get into that, ah, but right. I also went. Uh, I got the coordinates of where this bomb mm. hit. Oh, wow. and using my handheld GPS, I went out to the site and stood in the middle of the crater. <laughs> you're the best. You're such a role model to us. I can't yeah. believe you're, you're hunting. Yeah. Amazing. Now, Mike, I <laughs> to say, Roland, you're, you're such a nerd. Well, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, we are nerds, and therefore we like nerds. <laughs> I think this is amazing. Yeah. We're in the nerd groups. So anyway, carry on, can't. So the, after the bomb dropped, the, the, uh, by, by the way, uh, there was an eyewitness uh, um, account, a small plane pilot coming from northern New Mexico and with the intentions to landing at the Sunport in 1957 was mm. flying a two-seat small plane, and he was looking right at this scene, and he said the mushroom cloud that went up was about 2,000 2,500 feet, and it looked like a mushroom cloud. Oh, my God. Because, of course, it was, you know, sand and dirt and yeah. tree bits. And um, he was like, so they, they did just nuke Albuquerque. <laughs> so he, so he, so he kept flying. He, yeah, he kept flying. He, he <laughs> called the tower, and he says, hey, what, what's going on there? Are you, are you testing bombs? And uh, they said, uh, stand by. I think we've had some sort of an accident. So they they... I guess um, he said it was a big deal. Of course, the Air Force downplayed it. In fact, they yeah. lied about this for days. I believe that, yeah. The, so the bomber, because it was he less heavy, it circled around for a while, getting its calculations done for how to land under the new conditions, and finally came in. So maybe it took half an hour for all that to happen. And so the, the captain who, uh, who was interviewed later said, uh, when they uh, got on the ground and taxied to the site they had been directed to to park, there was a whole bunch of staff cars standing there with generals you know, waiting to talk to them. I mean, I get, you know, I've had bad days, but I'd imagine that would be a particularly <laughs> bad day. And you just, you land there and you got your head in your hands and you're like, here they come. <laughs> I have to explain I know, I this. Know, I know, the nuclear bomb I dropped. Yeah, this is the end of my career. Yeah. So now, 
if, if you're looking at uh, pictures, uh, what you're seeing is the interior of a B-36, and this is the cradle or the universal bombing system that holds it. And I, there's an arrow on this pointing to the little tiny yeah. latch that uh, is at fault for this. I got to say, I'm looking at this and I'm not thinking that that looks like some sophisticated, but it just looks like a frame with some parts that hold a, you know, hold something in place, but like, it doesn't look uh, particularly technologically, you know, high tech or anything. It's just, it looks like it could hold a, a giant crate of pumpkins or something just as easily as a nuclear bomb. Well, you got to remember this is 1957. So Dream of such a world. This is yes. probably the, the best they could do in 1957. Um, <laughs> yeah, they could make horrific explosive devices that could like blow up whole islands, but they couldn't quite make a thing that could hold it in place so it didn't fall yeah. out of the plane. An well, adequate latch? Who do you think we are? <laughs> <laughs> We're all about physicists. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Let's see. So the, the commander, um, he was afraid that since he kind of figured the bomb had fallen out of, fallen out of the plane. Yeah. But he was worried that somehow the navigator had gotten trapped or oh. hooked up to the bomb and he had gone out the door with it. So like he was Slim glad. Pickens. Yeah, he was glad that navigator um, had said, I'm, I'm still okay. Um, so, and, and here, they, here the, uh, they're going through their interrogations. Um, they actually only talked to the crew for the rest of that day and let them return to Biggs Field uh, that afternoon. Um, and they actually took off the doors to the Bombay because the, they were so damaged, they were gonna be a drag on the aerodynamics. So they just wow. left a hole there because it didn't have time to do anything else. Jeez. And um, one last thing was the person, the Air Force person who was supposed to receive the bomb and give them a receipt for it, uh, actually gave them that receipt, but wrote uh, in the comment section, mm. condition unknown. Right. Just wrote a <laughs> question mark. Military humor, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So um, we are glad that that bomb was not uh, armed because uh, that could have um, made a huge error. Now, that bomb, and, and I've looked at a number of different sources, and um, they were not, they're not clear about how powerful that bomb is. So in some places, they said it was 10 megatons. Other places mm. they said it was 12 megatons. This particular and, bomb. And so um, uh, the, the question to me is, well, what, what's a megaton? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I created this or found this slide about the Hiroshima bomb, which was 16 kilotons. Right. So mega is ten, a thousand times bigger than a kilo. So 16 kilotons did all the destruction in Hiroshima, and this is 10, almost, uh, I didn't do the math, but it's 1,000 times worse, this 
uh, Mark 17 bomb. So uh, the, the Hiroshima bomb would have caused complete destruction within one mile of the hypocenter of that, of that bomb. And then there would have been severe damage within uh, one and a half or one and a quarter miles. Now, if this bomb had been armed and it was 10 megatons, then complete destruction would have been 625 miles. Wow. Wow. If you just go on to Google and measure the width of New Mexico, it's not even 625 miles. That's insane. So so this, this, this made me think, why... Why are we building weapons no that are so destructive they could wipe out an entire state of no the United kidding. States? Wow. Here, here. Well, what's crazy is the Russians had, had the biggest bomb in the world, which was like way yes. bigger than this one. Nuts. Um, hey, I just wanted to point out August 6, 1945 was the, the Hiroshima bomb. Right. This is August 6th. 2020 this is 75 years later today when we're recording this this is the anniversary well what a what an interesting juxtaposition oh it killed a cow (laughs) yeah the only fatality for the bomb was a cow because that area had been used as a grazing spot and so uh unfortunately uh, that cow decided it was going to meet its maker yeah, um, in that way. <laughs> I don't know. You know, if we were given the chance to be bombed or um, stunned or and have our uh, throat cut, yeah. what would you choose? Maybe the cow saw it plummeting down and kind of moved a little closer. You think? You mean he moved? <laughs> oh, jeez. Ouch. Ouch. All right. End of the show. No extra charge for him. So here's on this slide for those looking at slides. Mm -hmm. um, There's a number of uh, newspaper articles that I found about this. Um, And basically the Air Force um, declined to get into any detail. they said, yeah, it, it was a uh, high explosive operational blockbuster, um, but we're not allowed to make any uh, further identification and talk about it. So, Because I mean, um, people had seen the explosion. I mean, the, if that guy said it was 2,000 feet up in the air, then obviously, like, everybody in Albuquerque was looking in that direction, must have noticed it, and probably everybody heard besides, it. Besides, someone in Roswell just had a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A daughter, Brenda Jean, was born Tuesday to Staff Sergeant James Seward. What a different world we live in where the headlines, the competing headlines was explosion at at an Air Force base and girl born in Roswell. Like that (laughs) could be front page news, both of those things. In doing historical research and using newspapers, another thing that uh, often floors me is that the newspapers used to put people's addresses. Yeah, oh, no kidding. Say, we talked Joe's, about that. Joe Smith, not Mike Smith, Joe Smith of 325 yeah. Smith Street. I know. Uh, it's like, had, had, was broken into. 
and his, but good thing, his expensive collection of coins was not stolen. Yeah. You know, and you go, hmm. You could go visit him and give your condolences. Yeah, right. Well, it's not stolen. They're still there. Treasure. Yeah, that, so, that definitely seems scary. But I guess all our information's online now. So. Yeah. Um, so Kurt Kirtland continued to um, uh, obfuscate mm -hmm. and finally just told the he's in the public information office, which is the oxymoron, right? Um, yeah, right. They, they're there to keep things secret, not to give yes. public information. They're not so there. He they're said, to keep you from finding things out. We're not allowed to answer these questions. Wow. I just want to, could you go back to that slide for a second? Because that I was, Air Force comments were that a normal bomb was accidentally dropped. I just thought, it's just a normal bomb, just an yeah. every... What, it's just a normal bomb. What's wrong? Normal what kind of bomb? Oh, just a bomb. Just a and regular it just bomb. A, it was just a small explosion with no property damage. Everything's nobody talked fine. about the cow. Yeah, nobody mentioned the cow. Poor the cow, cow is apparently not property because it was damaged. <laughs> yeah. Huh. It gave so, its life for its country. That was 1957. Mm -hmm. 24 years later in 1981, um, I think the journalist submitted a Freedom of Information Act uh, request asking for more information about this bomb drop to be released. Um, and there was a little bit more information given out. However, it took five more years or until 1986 before um, more and more details. And the, there was a series of articles that were published in the journal and picked up by numerous papers across the United States because, you know, it's not just an Albuquerque story now. It's a nuclear yeah. bomb dropped on a city. Yeah, that's a big deal. And so um, that was something people wanted to know about. Um, the H-bombing of Albuquerque. Beautiful. Yeah. That's the headline here. Yeah, this is an um, article in the journal from August 27th. And uh, as uh, Kai says, it... Its title is The H-Bombing of Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, after that became known, the New Mexico Environmental Department said, you know, we should, we should probably know a little <laughs> bit more about that. Now we'll and check they, it out. They sent their en environmental scientist, John Martinez, Mm -hmm. um, who, out there to the site to with a Geiger counter to uh, to see if there was any residual um, uh, uh, radiation. Now, I um, in um, March, I guess it was uh, March or April, uh, I went out there with a Geiger counter and uh, did what John Martinez did, but in uh -huh. 2020. And. Well, I'll show you. Okay. Uh, the suspense is killing me. It does so say that it had plutonium in it for sure. Yes. That article you just showed. So th this is a slide for those looking at the slides, but I took a Geiger counter out there that I borrowed from a UNM professor in nuclear engineering. And um, I took it out there. I had the coordinates of where the bomb drop had happened. Wow. From an organization called the Center for Land Use Interpretation mm -hmm in um, Santa Monica, California. Hmm. 
they were interested in this a few years ago and they actually led a group of uh, artists out to this site and um, they actually placed a, a pole, a four by four post and put a plaque on it. Because hmm. um, that's what they're all about is land use interpretation. Yeah. However, in the years since they did that, um, someone stole it. So anyway, I, I went out <laughs> to the site. Not an Albuquerque. Um, and and uh, you can actually go there. That's it's uh, it is not on the Sandia uh, reservation. There's okay. a fence to the east, and you can't sure. go there because of the secret stuff they've got sure. on the, on there. But this is still in the UNM land. And um, here are four pictures I took from the center of the crater. Now, what happened is the Air Force knew that this was a nuclear device and that they immediately marshaled a special team to go out there with equipment, backhoes and other mm -hmm. earth moving equipment and people who, whose business this is to clear up radioactive material. And so they hauled off a bunch of this dirt, um, which is now uh, at the campus. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> they buried it, I bet. Well, they, they the probably dirt. took it to a place that, and, and this is a curiosity I have too, where did they take that dirt? Yeah. Sure. I want to see the record. Where did they take it? They left I, it, I bet. They no, threw well, it into Acid Canyon if you go up near Carlsbad or Farmington, uh, those underground testing sites are just left there and they have like classified material there that could be used for terrorism grade weapons. According they're to, also uh, like dozens of feet under the ground. The I would top think. secret New Mexico or top secret tourism. But I uh, bet they hauled this off and stuck it in barrels and buried it in the Hamas somewhere. Maybe, but some, way, what about the church rock spill on the Rio Puerco? They just left that. Well, it was like couldn't. the biggest nuclear spill ever. And I'm, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but there is a site mm -hmm. in which they were going to fire off um, nuclear, uh, or, or they were going to use it to create some sort of energy, and it's down in southeast uh, New Mexico, Carlsbad, Gnome something like site. that. Yeah. And it's called Operation something. I can't remember the name of that. I think Gnome. That's, oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one down by Carlsbad, Project Gnome. Yeah. And Project Gnome was also Farmington. Yeah, the, well, no, part of Project Plowshares, the beating right. our swords into, into plowshares, like the Bible verse. Yeah, it was to and, uh, see if they could release natural right. gas. It was right. like a nuclear fracking kind of. We can yeah. make a bay in Alaska. It won't be radioactive forever. <laughs> um, like... <laughs> That so, so there is no yeah. evidence of it, but if anybody's well, curious and wants to go out there for themselves, I, I will give them the coordinates and they can make the trek themselves. Amazing. You actually take a dirt road, you know, the, the road that goes by the drag strip, which is not in use now because of the yeah. pandemic, the, the road that you go by the drag strip, you kind of take this diagonal road that goes southeast, northwest, and you drive along it for a couple of miles and um, then you have to take a overland trek over this kind of scrub brush to get to the center of it. If you get to this, um, the Sandia fence, mm -hmm. you went too far. Okay, good to know. So some people in the, in the area know Patrick Nagatani. Have mm. you ever heard of him? Actually, no. He was a UNM professor of photography and art. And um, 
he did a number of social commentary photographs. His, his thing was social commentary, and he did a lot of things uh, about how the New Mexico economy is tied in with the nuclear industry. That's and he right. called yeah. uh, his series of photographs Nuclear Enchantment. Ooh, and one, one of the images that he did is now on the YouTube screen. And it, this is the actual photo which he took. It's, a, it's a, at that site. And then he's got a photo that he took earlier of people and a B-36 flying over. And then he's holding it in the other photograph he's taken. So he yep, took this yep. in 1978. I love it. Now, was he there when a B, when a, I'm sorry, a B-36 or a C-36? A B thirty six. No, he, he was a master of photo composite compositing. So okay. he put that he photoshopped that plane into the scene. Wow, it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, yeah, image there. Uh, I was privileged to have met Patrick Nagatani in my membership uh, with the Enchanted Lens Camera Club. We had him come and do a judging of our members' photos one time and talk a little bit about his career. But he was already, when he did this, uh, he was already pretty ill. And, uh, and it was kind of sad to see him. He was kind yeah. of a shell of, of his former self. But it was nice to have met somebody. So wow. that's the end of the nuclear bomb drop. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank what? You. <laughs> That's my question. What? How? Yeah. That's also, cool. they're not lying anymore about anything else, right? Like that <laughs> right. was just something <laughs> they, they used they to They stopped do. lying yeah. after that. Yeah. They learned their lesson. They're nope. like, ah, 57, that, they, in 1958, they said, look, yeah. it's 1958. We got to stop lying. We got to stop lying, yeah. you guys. Yeah. So the 24 million gallon fuel spill that was previously said to be 8 million gallons that was previously said to not exist that's that's totally on the level now yeah, yeah. Totally. it just yeah. keeps going up and down <laughs> yeah um well, and, and about that fuel spill uh, i think it's not so much lying as the fact that they just don't know honestly yeah. i think you're probably right like huh. i yeah what i've read about their ability to kind of judge that sort of thing interesting it, it's uh, leave something good to be desired any anytime you're digging around um, underground, um, the the ground is not uniform. Hmm. You know, it, there's mm -hmm. pockets of all sorts of things going on down there. And so, if you drill a hole in one place and you drill a hole five feet over, you may find completely different um, uh, conditions. It's it's that old story of. Uh, blind people trying to describe an elephant. Right. And depending on whether they're touching the leg or the tail or the trunk, um, you know, they don't, they're going to give different descriptions. Um, so it turns out that very, very soon um, or within days of the accidental drum bomb, bomb drop, <laughs> there was another military accident. Um, and it involved a guy named Edwin Boggy, and and uh, he had to eject from his burning jet mm. at forty thousand feet, and he landed. Uh, he, he, his ejection seat worked perfectly. There's the parachute open, 
and he landed near Las Lunas. And the plane um, crashed. And they, all I heard, all I could find from the newspaper is the plane crashed 25 miles south of Albuquerque. That's all the description. And of course, I want to know what street, what was the address of the street that it crashed yeah, into? And no one ever, no one's ever mentioned it. So I don't okay. know. I'm, I'm very uh, curious to go to that site and see what's there. Yeah. That's and why they, that's why we're kindred spirits here because you want to know like the street. You want to go stand in the the empty <laughs> field where the bomb was. But, yeah, we're all about. I was that. looking at that picture of the of the crater site, and there's there's nothing to see there at all. And yet, I want to go and stand there too. Like that's that it takes a special kind of person, and you're definitely one of us. <laughs> so anyway, so here's here's and and maybe most people who haven't. Uh, jumped out of an airplane at 40,000 feet, don't know. First of all, you cannot breathe, uh, mm. well, you, you can breathe, but not very well, at any altitude above 10,000 feet. Yeah, well. um, when you're flying in a private plane that has the ability to go over 10,000 feet, one of two things happens. One, it has a pressurized cabin that can force the pressure up so that it appears not to be 10,000 feet. Or if that's too expensive or the, uh, the, the plane does not come in that option, then you have to wear an oxygen mask. So anything above 10,000, you can't breathe normally. Right. Um, plus, it's cold. We're talking mm. about uh, tens, to, tens of degrees below zero uh, at that altitude. And so um, if you jump out of a plane or if you eject from a plane at that altitude, you've got two things to worry about, how cold it is and whether or not you can breathe. Mm. Now, fortunately, military jet pilots usually have those oxygen masks over their face all right. the time. Even though the, the plane may have oxygen in it, they wear that. So when they're mm -hmm. bailing out, they have a tank that's with the ejection seat that will give them enough oxygen to come down. But, you know, you're wearing clothes that, you know, will keep you warm here on a winter day when it's uh, 20 degrees or 10 degrees. But when it's minus 30 or minus 40, uh, if you don't get down to warmer um, altitudes pretty fast, you could actually uh, have froze, you know, freeze a limb or something. So um, it, it was, he was fortunate. Um, he got yeah. out and uh, I think, and I don't know this, I'm just making this up. I think when you eject from a plane like that, uh, the parachute does not open right away. You okay. free fall for quite some distance to get out of that altitude. And then the parachute, the, there's an altitude um, device on there that says you're, you're low, and then it pops out to slow down your uh, fall. That sounds so. right. <laughs> you may have been making yeah. it up, but I believe you. Yeah, you wouldn't want your like, parachute to immediately get stuck in the wheels or something. So uh, here uh, for the YouTube people is a picture of an F-86 Sabre jet, not the one because it burned and blew up and crashed, but yes. this is what they look like. And to me, as I was growing up as a kid, this was a jet fighter. That, yeah, I was going to say it's got a classic look to it for sure. Yeah, that's what, that's what I remember. The big air intake in the front that kind of looks like a nose mouth mm -hmm. and then swept back wings. Very cool. This is a restored one. Um, 
So here's the next one, uh, a crash of another F-86. And then, you know, these planes came in all sorts of versions. The first one was the F-86, and then they came out with the A model, the B model, the C model, the D model. Every time they did some sort of an improvement, they gave right. it another suffix. Because they so were going for the collector's a, market. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so this is an F-86D for those who paid attention and cared. Um, uh, this happened July 8th and 9th. And you say, well, wait a minute. Was it the 8th or the 9th? And we'll find out why I said that. So three F-86 were out practicing night formation flying out of the Davis-Monthan Air Force Base near Tucson. Now, people might not know that by its name, but the Davis-Monthan Air Force Base is where they mothball all the planes out on the oh, desert. Oh, that's the, that's the, the graveyard, right? The, air, yeah. the airplane graveyard, and Air you Force can, graveyard? You can actually go there and visit the, those planes. They, yeah. they take you around in a golf cart or a, or a van. Uh, they won't let you get out and wander, but mm. you can drive down the the aisles of these planes. You can't get in one. No, you can't get in Damn. one. Um, so in this training uh, flight, apparently they needed it because there was some confusion about what plane was going to be on the right. So at 24,000 feet of elevation, one of the pilots, Lieutenant Van Fleet, bumped Lieutenant Onyate's plane, causing both of the planes to become mm. uncontrollable. The flight leader who was flying away from them, he saw the collision and ordered both pilots to immediately eject, not believing that they could, um, you know, pull it out of whatever configuration it, it was in. So the, the pilots ejected and they both landed about a half a mile from each other on the other side, on, e on either side of a steep, uh, densely wooded canyon. Wow. Um, so as, as it would happen, as luck would have it, as you say, uh -huh. there was a thunderstorm that night. Oh, and so they couldn't, the pilots couldn't be rescued until the next morning. Um, Lieutenant Van Fleet's plane crashed near Mount Bigelow in Arizona, northeast of Tucson, and, and that crash was found right away. But Lieutenant Onyate's plane disappeared. Mm. Now, do you have the sound effects for Twilight Zone? They need <laughs> I could, to be I could inserted make some. here. Do, 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 do. There you go. All Great. right. It was perfect. Um, three months later, a rancher near Truth or Consequences called the Air Force and asked them why a crashed airplane was on his grazing land and to get it the hell off. I like I like how yeah I like how that's framed. Like, why is this airplane out here? You get it out of here! It's on my land. I, I didn't give him, you permission to crash here. It took him three months to notice it. The guy must have had a big ranch. I think I met so, that rancher when I was out at Sierra Leone. So they think that amazingly, the plane's autopilot corrected the attitude of the plane after he jumped out. And it continued flying east until it ran out of fuel. It just kept going. Mexico. Wow. Wow. 350 miles it flew on its own. I think that yeah. autopilot deserves a medal. Yeah. 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 And 
And uh, for impressive. those YouTube folks, here's here's kind of a map of yeah. approximately how it went from Mount Bigelow near Tucson all the way to Wisconsin. It's a straight line. Oh, no, Mount Bigelow. Whoops. Oop. Here we go. Here we go. Next one. Stratton um, Fortress. The B-52B. You know, if they don't have a suffix, I'd be suspicious that they were Chinese knockoffs. <laughs> could be. Well, that um, was too early for that, though. <laughs> you could probably get one off of Wish now, though. Yeah. Or uh, offer up. So um, this is a B-52 Stratofortress. It was the 1961 updated model of the B-36. It was mm -hmm. um, designed by the Strategic Air Command. And in essence, planes like this flew all around the world, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, yes. ready to go wherever they were needed. It so was crazy. how we defended our country before there were missiles. And a major plot point in Dr. Strangelove. Yes. So um, this is April 7th in 1961. And this crew of the B-52 was ordered to participate in a training flight for some New Mexico Air National Guard pilots flying um, jet fighters. It was to play the target. It was to mm -hmm. pretend, pretend that it was a um, enemy bomber that had penetrated our airspace and the Air National Guard was gonna go out there, find it and shoot it down. And so they used ground radar stations to help them steer towards it. It was a training exercise of how to accomplish this. That particular plane was also on a big field in El Paso, oh. and they had named this plane the Ciudad Juarez in oh. honor of El Paso's sister city across the border. That's kind of nice. So the, the plane, uh, the, the bomber had a, a specific navigated run that it was supposed to go on. Uh, that was not told to the ground radar controllers. So they were on uh, alert to try and see if they could spot it. And the plane was using, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm sure it was using some sort of uh, navigating jamming equipment to try and make it difficult for them to seek it. Right. Uh, so the, the two planes from the Air National Guard uh, were the F-100 Super Sabres, it was the next mm. version of the F-86. So they had made five runs at this bomber by that time and had electronically shot it down five times. <laughs> so the, the two fighter pilots said, uh, you know, we're getting low on fuel, it's time to go back to the barn. And they said, we've got enough for one more run, let's do a number six. So they maneuvered around and got in line and the, the, the approach was to come at it from the backside and shoot heat seeking missiles, which would hit the, or which would be attracted by the exhaust from the jets mm -hmm. of the bomber. And so they, they 
they came up from behind it because they can go faster than the bomber. They came up and then a certain distance, they, they pressed the button that would register the electronic kill and swoosh, off went a missile. So they, just, they pushed the wrong button? Nope. I'll they, tell that you that was the right later. button. <laughs> it's like the pills in the matrix. Do not take the green pill. <laughs> um, oh, no. Oh, people died. Oh, the, the B-52, it hit the inboard left engine, causing the left wing to come off, which caused the plane to go into a violent spin mm. where it was rotating around the, the wing that was not there. And it was very difficult. The centripetal forces to try and get out of that thing were tough. So um, some were able to eject, especially the pilot and co-pilot that had actual ejection seats. But some of the crew in the back, like the gunners or the navigators and other people, they didn't have ejection seats. They had to open mm. a hatch and fall out. And it right. was just too much forces. So yeah. they, they were not able to get out. Oh, those poor guys. So on the day of, oh, guess what? Remember, we had a thunderstorm on the other training exercise. So this day, there was a snowstorm. It's mm. April, but it's snowing over by Mount Taylor where this Mexico. happened. Yeah. So Captain George Jackson, Donald Blodgett, and Raymond Singleton all were able to eject and were rescued that very day. But because of the snowstorm, uh, two that ejected had to wait overnight in freezing conditions. Mm. Uh, Captain Ray Obel and Manuel Mieres uh, of Flagstaff, who was the crew chief, he had to wait and hit waiting and because of his injuries, he ended up losing his left leg. Mm. The others were relatively okay. They recovered from their injuries. Unfortunately, three of the crew members did not survive. Stephen Carter, Glenn Baer, and Peter Generis. Wow. Peter Generis actually was from Albuquerque, even though he was in the Air Force down in El Paso. And um, he, he is buried in Fairview Cemetery right. and found his grave. Is he in the old section or the new section? He's in the new section. The new section. Okay. Um, so the two pilots that were involved in this were uh, a gentleman named Lieutenant Van Syak and Captain Dale Dodd. And it was the, the missile was fired from Van Syak's plane. Now, Van Syak was, he had over 1,900 hours in jets and 1,000 hours, over 1,000 hours in the specific F-100 and had been with the Air National Guard for 30 months. He was their safety officer. Oh, dear. <laughs> and he had written a number of operational procedures for these air-to-air -air missile training and firing exercises. And so obviously the Air Force was wondering, sure. how is it that our training officer ended up doing that? Well, it turns out that they discovered a problem with the mount of the missile to the F-100. It was not airtight and moisture could get in uh, a uh. certain place and then it caused a short allowing the uh, missile to be fired. And they then immediately, uh, well, they 
after this accident, they immediately stopped all training exercises, and then they discovered this uh, water problem, fixed it, and then all planes um, now had that modification. But they didn't, like, I mean, it just seems to me, like, why would you have a live missile on it for a training exercise? That's a great question. I had that myself, and I, I, I came to this conclusion, but I made it all up. See if you <laughs> Okay. Let's see if um, it matches the parachute theory. Remember, it's 1961. We're in the middle of the Cold War. Uh-huh. And while they're training how to attack bombers that might come into our airspace, there was always the thought that they might actually come into the airspace. Like, need to be so, ready. Right. So they needed to be ready with real missiles, even if they were out on mm. a training. Does that well, sound plausible? It it sounds like something that the Air Force might have thought was plausible. How about that? <laughs> I should see if I can get a job with the Public Information <laughs> Service. I have good reasons why bad things happen. So um, about a year later, uh, he had been cleared of this accident. And about a year later, here in um, New Mexico, at the Presbyterian Church on Carlisle and Central, mm. he married uh, Miss Marjorie Denton, and uh, they they were married the rest of his life. He died at nice. the age of 80 in 2014, so well, that's he had a good. good life. I hope he didn't feel too bad about such a terrible thing happening. Well, I'm sure he felt bad about it. but I'm sure he did know. feel bad, but not too bad. I mean, you know. Like, well, it wasn't him. Yeah, exactly, but... right. Still, yeah, that's a horrible thing to be involved in. All right. So, right back. here's the next uh, crash. This involved a B-36 again. By the way, these are not in chronological order. I'm sorry, I should have probably oh, yeah. done that. Uh, this was in 1951. This was actually sti- uh, six years prior to the accidental bomb drop. Now. B-36s were coming and going from Kirtland Air Force Base all the time. If you grew up in the late 40s, early 50s, um, I've heard from people who did, and they said that they loved the sound of this. It was so distinctive Mm. that that they just would stop what they were doing when they would hear a B-36 and just take it all in, you know, like, wow, that is, that is, weird that is so it's a really unique sound oh yeah with those six powerful engines i'm sure that it it probably would rumble your insides if you're just such a massive thing to to look up right it'd be like listening to local albuquerque band chichara (laughs) i like that you thought of that i thought of in seabrook texas the mosquito trucks spraying uh, poison in the air every summer oh. evening, which was a super nostalgic thing for me. It's oh, probably going to kill me one day with that. You and Terrence Malick in the tree of life. Yeah, there you go. So this B-36 that crashed at Kirtland was out of Carswell Air Force Base in Texas, and it was coming to Kirtland. By the way, they came into Kirtland all the time because Kirtland was the Air Force's nuclear base. And so um, there were any number of modifications and changes and things that they needed to do to the airplanes to accommodate the different nuclear bombs as they progressed and evolved. 
including that uh, universal bombing system. And uh, so they were messing with those all the time. So the planes would fly in, they would work on them, and then they'd fly back to Carlsville, Carswell mm-hmm. Air Force Base. Um, so this plan was coming in, pretty routine, nothing special. Um, it's going to land on runway eight, which is the one that goes to the east. So it's the one most used by the commercial planes when they, okay. now. before they stop flying after the pandemic. Um, it's coming in over the east, so it's over the city, flying over uh, um, Rio Grande, coming into the east. Um, and it's a pretty strong crosswind day this happens. Mm-hmm. Again, this is uh, May, so we're in our uh, windy period. Right. Um, they say the gusts were up to 35 knots. And of course, this is a huge plane, so crosswinds are going to give it a bad time. Yeah. So after passing over the end of the runway at about 200 feet, so they're almost there, mm. the right wing dipped and it hit the, um, the outboard engine's prop. Remember, there's six of them, so there's three on one wing. And the prop hits the ground, the nose pitched up, and then the plane cartwheeled, which means oh, that it's, it's going sideways down the runway, wing over wing over wing. Oh. Wow. Man, what a nightmare. Explosion I don't think I've seen that in a movie. Fire. 23 airmen died in wow. this. Plane. That's awful. That's huge. That's a- Only two aboard the plane survived, and that was Captain Richard Fogwell and Staff Sergeant Jack Erickson. Uh, 23 died. And you'd say, wait a minute, that seems like, like a lot of people for a bomb. Yeah. Uh, and it was. They were, these were, um, these people were coming in for a class. This was on a Sunday, and they were coming in for a class that was going to start the next Monday and go for a week before they would go back to Carswell. So they were um, just riding it like they would ride a, a plane. Yeah. This is yeah. truly suppressed history, I feel like. I've never heard of this. Like, this is a huge mass death event i mean well and it makes me wonder like how many like air force or armed forces uh enlisted people die in peacetime i mean it must be a pretty significant number even now so i won't list all the passengers but Mm -hmm. um the pilot the co-pilot um the navigator flight engineer radar uh operator all on the crew died and that was nine people that were really a a part of the bomb crew and then the rest were the passengers coming to that class the next day so that was really sad and i had the same reaction you did is i had never heard of this yeah and i've been in albuquerque now for 20 years so it seems to me like something that that might have come up yeah by accident sometimes oh that's a bad pun it might have come up without anybody really meaning to do it it just i would just read it somewhere but um i stumbled upon it in my research about military accidents mm-hmm. uh, if i hadn't done that i wouldn't have known it never heard of it like, yeah that is a it's more than the twa people. crash yeah so it's like twice as many so, so here is an interesting couple of interesting twists with this particular crash it turned out 
that an engineer, another military nerd named Alan Hazard, had a habit of going down to Kirtland Air Force Base and filming planes landing. Mm. And he was there that Sunday. You oh, know, wow. he, he was off. This was his hobby. And so he had good photographic equipment. Uh, it didn't say, but I'll bet you it was a 16 millimeter professional mm -hmm. camera for that time. And he was filming this um, approach and crash. And he got um, excellent film of it. So Air Force wanted to get it immediately. Um, he brought it to them the day of the crash and said, you may want this. Um, they took it, developed it for him, and then gave it back to him. He actually sold that to Life Magazine for $500. Really? And they took some um, images out of it and mm -hmm. published a couple of pages about it. Now, I tried to get a hold of that. It was the May 1951 edition. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to... Uh, it was more work to try and find it. Yeah, these, I know what you mean. These Life Magazine page by pages are not on the internet. Right. Because they will sell you reproductions. Sure. And, and yeah. so the antique kind of mall used to have a bunch. Well, if, if anybody knows where a 1950, May 1951 edition of Life is, tell me, get in touch yeah. with me. I will definitely buy it from you. And there must be the, fi the film must still exist somewhere, right? Yeah, I'm sure it does. Wow. Um, There's a Kirtland Air Force Base Historical Society. I know that. Yeah, not that I necessarily want to watch a film of that, but mm. I don't know. Kind so of. Alan Hazard, Alan Hazard, he went on as an engineer to work for NASA's Jet Propulsion uh, Laboratories in uh, California. JPL it has a very great reputation. In fact, in the, um, I I think in the uh, Big Bang Theory. Um, the the scientists in that comedy actually work at JPL. Oh, okay. Um, well, he was a senior development engineer in the missile engineering section. However, he did some other things. And for those watching the YouTube, um, there is a space suit, space suit that he <laughs> developed for use by astronauts on the moon. Don't say. And it's, it's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> in, in, of course, in 1951, it was yeah. probably it would have been so funny. Far, it's pretty far off. It, it looks ridiculous today. And it's like four yeah. times wider than the guy. Yeah, and it, and it has a windshield around him in 360 degrees. It, I, I don't know. I don't even know anything that's like it I could describe. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I'm sure so, it was like instrumental in the development of spacesuits, but man, it's a. It looks like a of an airtable tower. Yeah. Well, it, it's you know, and we look at we look at it today from the yeah. eyes of 2020, and we say this is ridiculous. It, right. it should be it's suitable for a comedy. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. And it would be, it would be too over the top for a comedy. And guess what? Mm. I watched Steve Carroll uh, in Netflix's yeah, yeah. Space Force, and yeah, in that uh, Space Force is about you know the Space Force, right. and um, Steve Carroll uh, goes out on this uh, 
a training mission in which he's in the desert, but he, they pretend that it's in the moon, and he has to wear a moon suit. And I swear, if you're looking at this picture on YouTube, to me, that looks like Alan Hazard's design. Right. It's similar. Like I said, you know, the, the actual design would have been too over the top for the show. Um, Space Force, but this this clearly, I'd say it has some uh, some lineage there. So on to our next one, also in 1951, Buddy. and it is another B-36. Mm. So uh, another thing I learned in this research is that how many B-36s were landing at Kirtland Air Force Base? Pretty common, which I guess makes now, sense if uh, it's the nuclear warehouse of the nation. In, in 1951, I was, uh, in November of that year, so just around the time of this crash, I would have turned three. Aww. So um, I wasn't uh, interested in the military in 1950. <laughs> you liked cows and horses. Yeah. Um, long ranging <laughs> was my favorite. Mm -hmm. So this B-36 had a crew of 12, and they, they had been temporarily stationed at uh, Kirtland for experiments and various trainings. Um, and they were coming in that evening after a day's flight. It was about six o'clock on a Thursday evening in October, uh, nothing special. Um, when the crew realized their main gear was not coming down. Mm. They were not getting Whoa. the indication in the cockpit that the gear was down. And so the, they had a problem. Yeah. So the pilot circled and until they had gas, so they just circled until uh, they tried everything they could to try and get the gear to drop. Um, they also needed to burn up any excess fuel in case they did end up crashing. They didn't want to fire. And so um, finally, they, they just weren't successful in getting the gear down. And the commander, the pilot in command, gave the order for everybody but the flight engineer and himself to bail out of the plane because he didn't know how this crash was going to work out. And they might be killed in coming in. Right. However, the, the co-pilot asked to stay uh, and to help bring it down, so he was allowed to stay. So three stayed in, and nine crew members jumped from the ship over Albuquerque. Again, October 18, 1951, you have nine parachutes wow. opening over the city. So the giant 179-ton plane oh uh, took, you know, made its approach uh, as it would if it had wheels, and finally came down and skidded on its belly to a stop on the east-west runway, and was quickly surrounded by emergency personnel, and there was no fire. I bet that was a hell of a noise. <laughs> yeah, and sparks. Uh, yeah. Fingernails on blackboards for a mile. <laughs> so only the there were a few injuries for the nine that had bailed out but they they were okay uh and the three, three who stayed aboard had no injuries whatsoever that's fantastic this um, is my uh, favorite story other than the uh, than the uh, the bomb dropping because nobody got hurt so this was actually the first time that a b-36 had landed without landing gear so mm. albuquerque's first Please mention this whenever you're talking about Albuquerque's first. That's right, okay. The pilot was praised for his skill and cool demeanor under pressure, and the newspaper came out and uh, took a bunch of pictures of this, 
Now, it turns out, you know, this is back in the day when everybody smoked and nobody thought sure. anything about it. Um, and so all three scrambled from the aircraft in a ladder brought over by the fire department because obviously climbing out the cockpit window was not standard procedure. Right. So they climbed out, caught down the ladder. They were standing there kind of, I guess, uh, assessing how lucky they really were. <laughs> and um, finally, one, one of the co-pilots said, oh, shoot, I left my cigarettes in the cockpit. <laughs> so I climbed back up on the ladder and got his cigarettes. A nation of hapless addicts. <laughs> well, it, it kind of showed to me that, um, you know, yeah, you're an addict, but also, <laughs> oh, just another day as a pilot of a BA. Right. That was just like that generation, though. They're just like unflappable. Yeah. Unflappable. I, I, my flaps are out all the time. <laughs> exactly. I, <laughs> nothing but flaps over here. Yeah, I am, I am very flappable. <laughs> so. Uh, the next one is we, we've left the B-36s now, and we're now a year later, B-1952. So there were two crashes in 51 that I know of. There might be others I haven't found out yet. This one is in 52, and it was a B-47. Now, mm. um, the, the B-36 had a pretty straight wing. It didn't have the mm -hmm. wet back wing, and, of course, it was still a prop plane. So between then and the B-47, which was much smaller, but it mm -hmm. was, had a different mission, it was all jets. That's all jets it was, on it. It's like six jets on it. Yeah, it had six total jets. And it had this thing in it. And you can see in this picture, for those who are lucky enough to be looking at pictures, it had something called the J-A-T-O, or the Jet Assisted Takeoff in which these extra jets came out from behind the plane mm. and just fired these rockets off. And they only used them on takeoffs because they didn't need them on landings, but they needed that extra oomph to get off the ground. Um, so it was called a JATO or a jet-assisted takeoff. Mm -hmm. And uh, this B-47, uh, numbered 50-026 on Wednesday, March 26th, crashed while taking off and using the JATO system. Mm. And they're not, I, I couldn't find any reason or um, crash analysis that said what may have caused the crash. Right. But I'm sure, that having been a pilot, not a jet pilot, but um, when you put forces on a plane that are not necessarily coming from the, the engines under the wing, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it changes the dynamic of the plane, and you have to be ready to adjust in terms of the controls right. to be able to take care of that. It would seem to me that if the Jada went off and you weren't ready for it, it could cause the accident. Right. So maybe it's just a matter of like kind of not catching it at the right time or something. Oh, so this, this killed people too, huh? This killed for everybody aboard, actually. You know, mm. the B-36 had... Um, um, a big crew, nine to 12 people on this thing. Um, but as the planes got more modern, they used less people. Yeah. So this bomber only had four, a crew of four. So unfortunately, it, it crashed mm. um, and killed all those people. And they were all from Albuquerque, which is kind oh. of 
unfortunately significant about this particular crash. Uh, the pilot was Arthur Zalt. The co-pilot was Francis Early. And these guys were in their 30s. Um, mm -hmm. a, a first lieutenant was aboard, Chester Thew, T-H-E-W. He was 40. He lived at 1504 Hermosa Southeast uh, in the Southeast Heights. Yeah. And Master Sergeant Alan Witt was 29, and he was from 1322 Lafayette Northeast. And uh, 1504 Hermosa, I mean, no, 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 I guess. Yeah, 1504 Hermosa, I think, is are in those buildings that are off of Gibson, I think, that are base buildings. Okay. Now sure. we think of that them as sense. base buildings. Yeah. That's so weird. It's you know, the the publishing of the addresses. It's like, well, yeah. we could go visit them now. Go visit the house and knock on the door and tell the current residents this story. And this also, besides the four Albuquerqueans who were killed in the crash, it had another Albuquerquean involved, and that's a guy named Peter Sheka. Um, he was the fire chief of Kirtland at the time. And he was quite well known uh, to Albuquerqueans at that time because he was a member of the UNM Lobo team that beat Texas Tech in 1940. This is like mm -hmm. the only time that's ever happened, is that? Yeah, uh, I think so. In 100 years of Lobos? <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So he became, he was a hero in this, trying to drag uh, two people out of the burning wreckage. Yeah. And, uh, he, he was successful, but they did not survive. Mm. So now we're going to talk about the crash of a B-29. Now, as I said uh, earlier, these are not in um, chronological order. So we're going to go back to 1947, um, 10 years before the atomic bomb dropped. So this is a B-29, the same one that was used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So this is just after the war. Yeah. This is on a Monday in January. and. Um, uh, 11 died in this crash. Mm. And um, this one is uh, sort of interesting. Um, this plane was taking off from Kirtland and it, it, it was using the runway that kind of, it's not the east-west runway, but it's the run that, runway that goes uh, north-east-southwest. Um, and so it took off to the south and apparently did not gain uh, elevation. Something happened. It, it just didn't, it wasn't able to fly and it fell out of the sky after mm. leaving the runway and it crashed into the Tijeras Arroyo. Yeah. Um, this plane was carrying what was described in the papers as Restricted experimental equipment. Aliens. And so immediately after crashing, crews went out there along with MPs and state police officers to keep people away from it until the restricted experimental equipment could be huh. removed. They think, investigators thought that maybe two of the four engines had caught fire during the takeoff roll and um, it just couldn't climb, um, unfortunately. And, and talking about wanting to be 
at the site where something happened, right. it is slightly possible that there are some pieces of this wreckage still in the Tierras Arroyo, right close to where I-25 crosses. And is that, uh, that looks like that's outside of uh, Kirtland Air Force, by, uh, Air Force Base, so that, that would be accessible land probably, huh? Yes, yes. Uh, hmm. You could go there. In fact, Tierras Arroyo is, is one of the strong drainage arroyos in town. And uh, I think um, Bernalillo County or Amapka owns that property. And it's, you can get there easy. You can get some 70 yeah. year old restricted experimental equipment, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah. Who has, there a, are parts. who has a metal detector? I do. I do. Yeah, Ty does that. <laughs> there, there, there are parts of Tejeras Canyon that are on baseland that you can't get to. Like I, mm. I tried to walk the length of it with. Well, this is Tejeras Arroyo. Oh, oh, yeah, isn't that the same place. thing? It's just as it goes through city. city. I don't think so. I'm looking at it here. I don't. Is it? This is very close to where I-25 crosses over it. Yeah. Oh, so no, this is a ways away. You know where. What? University now crosses the Arroyo and goes down yeah. to Mesa del Sol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's between I if it's connected. and I-25. It's all that kind of wasteland area. I bet it goes all the way to Terrace Canyon. Why else would it be called that? I don't know. Maybe somebody found oh. scissors there once. Oh, Terrace Arroyo goes all the way into the canyon. That's Oh, it does? Okay. Oh, okay yeah. yeah, in fact, um, uh, Eric Mann had a truck garden out there, and he built a dam across Tierras Creek right by where the Little Beaver Town uh, mm. area is. If you climb oh. down to Cheris Creek down there, you'll see the remnants of his concrete dam. He had a dam down there. Yeah, Emu oh. Man, he built that. Oh, okay. That's so, a story we should change. We, we should great. get into that at some point. But yeah, yeah I, another I know time. where that is. I can take you there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me take uh, you there. Isn't there a song <laughs> that goes down? Sounds... Probably. I'm pretty sure my mother sings it from time to time. Oh, you're putting me and your mother in the same <laughs> generation, aren't you? I think I you're literally the are. same generation. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've got a slide here that lists uh, names of the all 11 who were killed. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and some of these folks are actually buried in Fairview, too. Um, Joseph Sadler and uh, Francis Podleski. He was actually pulled from the wreckage alive, but died at Veterans Hospital where they took him at the time. Um, and and I, Veterans Hospital was there in 1947, but it- Well, on Gibson. Yeah. Um, A few more burials in Fairview. You guys know about uh, Find a Grave, right? Oh yeah, I've encountered it many a time. Yeah. So that's how I, I use Find a Grave to find these guys and where they were, and I, yeah. on Memorial Day, I took flags out and put them on their graves. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's a good thing to do. That's cool. Good to remember people. So, we talked a little bit about luck earlier, mm -hmm. and on that plane that crashed in the Tierras Arroyo, two of the normal crew were not aboard the flight that day. Um, I couldn't find out why they weren't. Were they on leave? Did they not make it to the flight? I assume they were given permission to not be aboard the flight, um, but they weren't. And so they survived and, uh, you know, went on to have families and 
mm. and uh, live their lives. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully so they're... here's another B29. And I learned a new term. There's certain versions of the B29, which were called silver plate B29s. Okay. And um, in the picture that the YouTube folks can see, this plane is silver, but that's not the reason for it. They, they gave the code name silver plate to the B or B-29s that were dedicated to carry nuclear weapons. Oh. So when you hear B-29 silver plate, you know that it was designed or it was outfitted to carry um, nuclear weapons. This one happened on a Tuesday, April the 11th of um, 1950. Did they have, so it had nuclear material with it or? Uh, they okay. don't, they don't uh, actually tell you that. Oh. I assume that they would have. It didn't make a 25 foot crater. No. Uh, it took off at 9.38 PM. So it was a nighttime crash. Uh, and it crashed three minutes after takeoff. Now they were taking off to the east and it hit the ground in those low hills we know of as four hills. The four hills. Oh. Um, and the crash site is, they say, six miles east of uh, Kirtland. And, and I guess the four hills are considered part of the Manzano Mountains because that's what they identify they? as the crash mm -hmm. site. Technically uh, Manzanitas, right? Is that right? Maybe, because yeah. there were tiny ones. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, this uh, slide for the YouTubers show what my best guess is for the flight plan. It took off from uh, Kirtland and tried to gain altitude and struggled, but just couldn't uh, gain any altitude. And at night, they ended up um, hitting the peaks of the four hills mm. right here. Mm. Wow. Boom. So this one also oh, had yeah. some secret stuff. Mm -hmm. So people were barred from visiting it. Now, this did crash into what was then and is now uh, the base. And so okay. public, public was not allowed in there anyway. Yeah. Nobody uh, from the news. Airmen ended up were killed in this crash. Um, and so to answer Mike's question, they had special crews sent to remove any nuclear material and secret oh, wow. equipment. Interesting. So there, I mean, there theoretically could have been two or more bombs that were. Yeah. You know, but the Air Force, again, pillars of the community and <laughs> truthful at all times, said that this flight was a routine <laughs> navigation training flight. It was normal. It was a normal flight. And it's normal for navigation training to carry a nuclear weapon. That's right. Um, the aircraft commander was from Frankfurt, Illinois, John uh, Robert Martin, and um, Lieutenant Thomas Stutz, Stoltz was the, the pilot. Actually, the commander often mm. doesn't fly. The co-pilot, which we would call, is actually the pilot because of how the Air Force designates those. Now, oh, so it was definitely a broken arrow. Yes. Ah. Is, I did not mention that. Thanks for bringing that up. All um, accidents involving nuclear bombs, whether they go off or not, 
are classified in general as broken arrows. And so the, the accidental bomb drop is a broken arrow. And then this was a broken arrow also because the bomb that was in this plane was a Mark IV, which is a variant of the Mark III Fat Man that was used on Nagasaki. And fun and fact, my grandfather was recruited by Los Alamos National Labs to work on triggering devices for Mark IVs. So it's because of this bomb that I live in Albuquerque, basically. Oh, Whoa. that is an interesting connection. I would never have met you, Ty, if not for if this not for this stuff. bomb. <laughs> Nuclear bombs. So, at all of these sites, there's really no plaque, no mm -hmm. notice, you know, no enduring memorial to these. Like Mike said, I would have never known. You'd think that a crash that killed 23 people at yeah. our international airport would have some acknowledgement somewhere in it to honor those folks. But no, nothing, except this one um, that happened on April the 11th, um, what did I say, 50, uh, I gotta go back to this slide, 1950. Um, it did have a memorial. The Since it was on the base, I guess, the some of the, military people on the base decided to make a memorial stone outcropping um, that memorialized the crash site and they invited the uh, survivors or the families of <coughs> the, the people who were killed on that flight to come to Albuquerque and to participate in the dedication of this site on April the 11th, 2019. Now, it's interesting that they did it on 2019, which was not a major 10 or five right. anniversary, but if they hadn't done it, then it would have been April the 11th, 2020, <laughs> and, and they couldn't have done it because of COVID. Yeah. Interesting. You know, I was thinking like the TWA crash has a memorial at um, the Sunport. It's it's bizarre to me that there's not memorials for some of this other stuff there, you know. Oh, yeah. I I wonder if there is a memorial. I just thought about this, but it's on the base mm -hmm. and not in the commercial airport. Yeah. That could be I, I have to by the way, I have had the dickens of a time trying to get a hold of anybody <laughs> at Kirtland's public information. They do not answer the phone. Yeah. They don't answer emails either. But here's I, a here's a fun thing to do. Take a uh, take a right turn on a Louisiana or somewhere that has one of the gates, and accidentally drive into the gate at Kirtland. It's a whole thing. It's a good time for everyone. They get to, you know, there's a guy who comes out with a gun and he stands in front of your car and he tells you how you've got to drive out exactly, and he has to walk in front of you the whole time. And it's yeah, it's a good time. You're giving me bad memories, Ty. You're, you're <laughs> resurrecting <laughs> unpleasant experiences. <laughs> I, I can't say that I've done that, and I would say right now I probably won't do that. That's well, you a, should. I, I, I have just purchased, it's less than two weeks old, a Tesla Model Y. And mm. for thrills, I just go out on the freeway and stomp on the accelerator and it shoves me in the back of my seat and I feel right. like I'm in Knott's Berry Farm. That sounds pretty good too, yeah. <laughs> but 
you could take it on the base and then stomp on the accelerator and just see what happens. Just see what happens. I, you know, I think Teslas are, are pretty good, but they're not bulletproof. <laughs> well, the Cybertruck may be, but not my car. <laughs> Except his demo model. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so this slide here is, I'm wrapping it up now, and this slide here is for people that were interested in this talk and want to see what a B-29 silver plate looks like. It's parked right outside of the nuclear museum. And yeah. so you can actually see a B-52 that was shot down yeah. and a B-20 or a B-29. And in the back of this slide, way in the back behind the B-52, up against the fence is the Mark 17 uh, hydrogen bomb. Yeah. And you know, I, I have to honestly say the back lot at the uh, nuclear museum where all those planes are, that's one of my favorite things to do in Albuquerque. I'm not that into the rest of the museum. I kind of find it a little thrown together. But the back lot is just, I mean, it's these huge vehicles and, and old models of Mark 17 bombs and things just sitting around. And there's something sort of um, very, it feels a little DIY in a way about it. And I, I just, I like and, wandering around there. And it has the sail from a nuclear submarine. That's right. Yes, it does. And um, I found that in Congress to have that sitting out uh, of a crusher pine. Right, yeah, rising out of the dirt. <laughs> it's like there's a there's a nuclear submarine under the dirt there. I, I was in Alamogordo a few months ago, and I was just like walking around some cool old silos I wanted to take pictures of. And I just, there were just like military stuff everywhere. There were yeah. like plane parts and things that looked like bombs and stuff, just like sitting in a gated little area by the main road. If you go to uh, Santa Rosa, there is a an old tank just sitting in the middle of a the grassy area of a freeway on ramp. You can totally just get out and go sit in the tank if you want. I mean, it, there's nothing there to stop you from doing yeah. that. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. There's also a tank in a, just some random backyard in Bond. Oh, okay. I, saw, I read a Tribune piece about it like 20 years ago. Hmm. But um, this is amazing, Roland. Yeah, so thank cool, you for man. Sharing this stuff. What a great put together, well researched, extensive. You could get a book out of this. You and, could. I no, I know you and, could. You could definitely yeah. do it. Oh yeah. What What are your takeaways? Like people need to be more careful. Like <laughs> a lot of accidents. You have to land. Be more careful. Safety first. <laughs> well, I, I think Ty touched upon it, and that is how many of our military die in peacetime accidents. Oh, yeah. like you know, nothing to do with fighting. Yeah. yeah. Well, they have to do with training for fighting, yeah. I guess. Because right, right. I don't think anybody uh, ever assembles 12 people and say, hey, what do you think? It's a nice day to go flying. Let's hop in yeah. that B-47 and take right. a trip. Good point. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I had a friend that was in the military, and everything is scripted with them. It's yeah. like, Okay, we're going to take off at this time. We're going to do this. We're going to go that far. We're going to at this speed, and then we're going to at this point turn left. And so, you know, it's it's not like out for a Sunday fly. It's like a hidden cost of of uh, militarization that you just never huh. really think that much about. You know, like people die all the time in situations yeah. that aren't war or battle. Well, and we don't think of it much because we're thinking about pandemic all the time but yeah, well, right i mean now, there yeah. are there are bad actors out in the world that could take advantage um 
know, might even take advantage of a pandemic and yeah. uh, decide to attack or do something. And, yeah. and so the, the one thing I would say about the military is they are very good at fighting the war we had last time. Yeah, that's true, right? That's what they say. So, you know. They don't need 60% of our federal budget. I know that. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's like World War One. They said, okay, this is how war is. So they yeah. prepared between World War One and World War Two. We need a lot of horses. World War, World war One again. But yeah. they realized that that wasn't yeah. going to work. They needed to do something From different. And we were surprised. It, it's also like taking off your shoes at the airport. One yeah. time. Uh, an, an idiot thought he could light his shoes on fire, and now for de a decade, we take our shoes off at the airport. Mm -hmm. So th that's been done. You know, terrorists yeah. move on. They go, well, the shoe thing didn't work. Let's <laughs> let's do something else. But we're still checking shoes. Right. Interesting. I want to know more about this Mark IV bomb that got dropped out there. I'd love to know, kind of the inside scoop on what, what the uh, secret experimental stuff was that they had involved mm. with, with I'll these bet you, crashes? Well, first of all, uh, a lot of military accidents are kept secret for 50 mm. years. Yeah, wow. just routinely. Yeah, and then the Cas-22. Because these accidents were over 50 years old, I was told by someone in the Air Force after he rejected my freedom of... Uh, 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 Access and Information Act, he said, oh, you know, those accidents over 50 years old, they're kept in a special vault that requires oh. additional work to go find. Oh, so I like, see. Can you come up with a couple more excuses? And okay. there's like no reason. I mean, well, maybe they were carrying alien bodies from Roswell on all these flights, but um, my guess is actually that that whatever technology they had is way outdated by now, right? Yeah, like, yeah right. Let, letting us know why you know, like the the B the, the the plane that crashed because it was uh, the Genesis at takeoff. Mm -hmm. um, they don't use that anymore, so <laughs> it's not like you need to save that secret right. uh, for something for some reason. No kidding. That's so, true. Mike, you may be interested in uh, my next project, which is going to sure. happen on Saturday. Um, uh, Diane Schaller and I are going to go out to Golden. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. And we are going to talk to a number of people who have lived in Golden for most of their life and There's learn about their experiences in oh, Golden. that's great. That's um, so cool. And... We're going to do some video and audio recordings of them to preserve them. That is so cool. I got to interview the Hendersons who owned the little store out there before they died and uh, wrote something up for New Mexico Magazine about the ghost town of Hagen because her parents had been miners there and they had a lot of the, her dad had bought all the merchandise from the Hagen Mercantile when that town folded, a little coal mining town at the north, north end of the Sandies. And, and, uh, and they had Hagen Scrip uh, that mm. miners were paid with sometimes. They had um, like lanterns and just amazing stuff from there. And she had wonderful stories. And, and uh, yeah, that's a Golden is a great place for those sorts of interviews because it's a lived in ghost town and there's tons of people that still have a connection. And it had a wonderful newspaper that ran for a long time, the Golden Retort. We got I have a lot of that. it printed out. Do you have a bunch of that? Yeah, from the 1880s. Uh, and, uh, 
maybe 70s even 1870s but but uh, they also had another at least one other newspaper they were like a very central mining camp in that area and they had that school which you can still see in ruins um that's great who are you gonna talk to like who are well the 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 key person that's arranged this for us is a gentleman named michael galavis do you know him no i don't know him and his sister yolanda and we're going to talk to bobby armillo and eva castillo and liz tapia rick montoya Debbie Armijo and Linda Casa or Casas. Well, we so got to cool. do something. We would yeah. love to have you on again if you wanted to share some of the stuff you find Absolutely. there. Be a regular correspondent for our show. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I think, let me, let me go ahead and wrap up the, uh, the recorded portion of this anyway. So just thank you so much, Roland, for, for coming you, on Roland. and talking about this. A really fascinating, Seriously. strange stuff that sort Stellar. of skewed my view of Albuquerque. I now figure that it's all... Uh, crashing airplanes yeah. for the last 50 years. How have we not been crashed into yet? <laughs> from above? We'll, uh, we hope to have you on sometime in the near future, and maybe something about Golden would be cool to talk about. Cool. Well, I'm glad. I'd be glad to do it. All right. Awesome. And, uh, Thanks, well, Roland. Stay well, man. Thank you for uh, <laughs> listening and or watching, and uh, we'll catch you all next time.